Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is the Making Gay History Podcast. This week, I want you to meet Wendell Sayers. You won't read about Wendell in any of the history books. Try an online search, and all you're going to find is the day he was born and the day he died. You won't even find his name in my book because he asked me not to use it. He worried that word might get back to his family that he was gay, so I called him Paul Phillips, and I didn't say where he lived. The world Wendell grew up in was stacked against him from the day he was born in 1904. He was black, adopted, gay, small-town western Kansas. But he found a way out, and against all odds, he built a life. He had a career, and he even found his way in the 1950s to a local chapter of the Mattachine Society. That was one of the first uh, gay rights organizations, uh, which was founded in 1950. So here's the scene. I'm in Denver on a bleak winter's day in a solidly middle-class neighborhood of identical houses next door to the old Stapleton Airport, which was still open back then. So I park my car in front of a well-maintained ranch. Wendell greets me at the door. He's dressed in pressed gray slacks, crisp white shirt, gray pattern tie, spit-shined black shoes. He's a solid, handsome man. He could be 70. He's really 84. After a quick tour of his tidy living room, Wendell pours us each a glass of water and we sit down at his dining room table. I clip the mic to his tie and I set my tape recorder to record. Interview with Wendell Sayers, Saturday, January 14th, 1989. Location is the home of Wendell Sayers in Denver, Colorado. Interviewer is Eric Marcus, tape one, side one. I grew up in a very segregated society, which kept me always aware that I was different. If anything went wrong in the town, it was always I who did it. It's a lot of, it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. And uh, gradually I discovered that I was different. And uh, I thought I was the only one in the world. I remember one time when I first discovered that things were not right, I, uh, I mean sexually, mm -hmm. that I... Uh, 
want to kill myself. Do you remember how old you were? I'd say about 15 then. What did you, do you remember what you, what you thought, how you realized you were different? Well, I knew I didn't care anything about girls. Everybody mm -hmm. else was chasing after girls, and I couldn't figure out why. <laughs> this didn't make sense to me, and still doesn't. Uh -huh. <laughs> so. So you thought about, about killing yourself? I thought one time I just didn't want to go through life this way, and uh, I didn't know other way to keep from it. Uh -huh. And I was just completely uh, down and out, so to speak. I gave up, practically. Finally, my dad came to me one day and told me what uh, he had heard, and whether he heard it, what, how he found it out, but somebody must have told him. What did your dad hear? He didn't tell me. He told me things. He told me that he had heard that I was not natural sexually. He said, "We'll go up to uh, to Mayo Clinic." Get your examinations and see if we can find out what caused it, what to do about it. So he puts Mother and I in the car and we go up to um, Minnesota. Minnesota, okay. That was back in the days you couldn't get a place to stay, you couldn't get a place to eat. Because you're black. Because you're black. So. What did you do? Buy crackers and bologna and in the store and take them out and eat them. Stuff like that. Where did you sleep? Got a tent. We got one of these uh, 10 by 12 tents. And we stayed in the tent at night. Take all of that and put it together. It's awfully hard on anybody. Don't care whether he's white or black, or green or yellow. Right. That kind of pressure is terrific. How old were you then? I was still quite young. Were you still in high school? Yes, I think I was still in high school. You must have been terrified. I was terrified. Now they've had me in the hospital for in and out for several days. Did they ask you questions? Oh, yes. All kinds of questions. They determined that I was homosexual and that there was nothing they could do about it. And um, final report from Mayo's was that um, According to their state laws that I should be, they should report me and have me incarcerated. Incarcerated? Yeah. For what? Because I was different. Put in jail? In jail. They said that since I was a, um, a client of theirs, they would not do that. So we went back home and reported to dad. I like to say this, that I was a, an adopted child. Mm -hmm. And I often used to wonder as a kid, what will he do when he finds it out, see? Will he put me out or kick me out or will he accept me? My dad was very understanding. I say understanding, I don't think he actually understood, but he was willing to accept, I should say. Mm -hmm. So he finally told me, he says, well, since they don't know what to do about it, find you a friend that you can trust and bring him home. He says, I don't want you playing around on the streets 
or out on the country roads because you never know who's going to step up behind you or slip up on you. Bring them home. What you do in your room is your business because they didn't want me out on the street. That helped me a lot. At least I was loved by my father. And of course, mother, she just idolized me regardless. They were remarkable people. As I look back, I didn't think so at the time. <laughs> no one thinks his parents are <laughs> remarkable at the time. But as I look back, I can certainly uh, appreciate them. Yeah. Ask me something. Okay. Well, there were no organized gay groups when you were here first year in Denver. Mighty Chai was the first organized group, I think, as far as I know of. Uh -huh. And I had a friend that worked down at the depot. The depot? What kind of? Uh, the train depot. Uh -huh. That's when the train used to come in. Right. And um, he was gay. And um, he asked me, he was going to a meeting one night and asked me if I'd like to go along. I said, yes, I'll go. So we went into somebody's home. I didn't know what home it was, but I, I went in. There was a group of guys sitting there. I imagine 10 or 12, maybe. I went first place, I'd say, to, to know or to meet somebody who was like me. I mean gay, but that, mm -hmm. that was my primary purpose in going. Uh, it developed later, or as uh, time went on, that once I found there were others besides me, I was much better able to accept myself. Can you elaborate on that at all? What you what you mean by that? Well, you see, to me, I was always a, a, a thorn in the flesh to me because I was gay. You were your own thorn. I was my own thorn. And this, uh, this uh, talking about it and going over experiences together helped me to realize, well, maybe I'm not the only one. Were you scared? No, I nothing to be scared about. Uh -huh. No, I think I scared them worse than this. <laughs> Why did you scare them? Well, I was the only black one. Oh, 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 oh. And they probably weren't, they weren't accustomed to having any contact with blacks. They weren't accustomed to having any contacts with blacks. So I come in and... Um, but once I found somebody else besides me that I... that would say they were gay, see? Up until that time, no one had said? I knew a few. Right. But I mean, to have a group. Mm -hmm. I had never been in that sort of situation before, see. I was completely happy to find somebody, because I thought I would be accepted and a part of the crowd. Mm -hmm. And I was really happy the first meeting I went to. Guys were not friendly. They weren't friendly. But that was all right. They didn't know me. Uh -huh. All they knew was I was a lawyer. And they were afraid of me, I think, because I was a lawyer. They were terrified of the law. What's this guy doing here? Who's he going to turn in the city? Uh -huh. Were you concerned about your practice when you went to, the, to, to this first meeting? I was concerned about my practice at every meeting I ever went to. Because uh -huh. I was working for the Attorney General's office at the time. Oh, you must have been really... Concerned. First black ever up there. The first black to work for the Attorney General in, yeah. in, in uh, Denver. Denver. At my office right there in the Capitol building. Mm -hmm. 
So, every time I went to Mattachine, I was as scared as the rest of them. Only yeah. I wasn't scared of the same thing as they was. <laughs> Just imagine the Denver Post would come out, front page, first black in the Attorney General's office, turns out to be. You could throw yourself off the Capitol for that one. I sure would. I had been raised so much as a underdog. I just would have done anything if I could have taken a step higher, see. And regardless of my gayness, I was still somebody. Did they ever ask you legal questions? They would ask me, sometimes I'd volunteer, they'd talk about something. Once in a while, I'd volunteer a little legal information. Mm -hmm. But to be, a, I was not a hired or paid consultant. Just volunteer, everything was volunteer back mm -hmm. in those days. I remember one time I set up a, one boy had got himself caught with a whole lot of nude pictures. Mm -hmm. And of course they took him down to trial. And beforehand, why, uh, I don't know whether he asked me or the society asked me or what, but anyhow, I knew the judge. The judge happened to be and I happened to know it. So I went down and thought I made arrangements with the judge to when this case comes up. You were gutsy. You were nuts. Plum nuts. As <laughs> I look back now, I was plum nuts. I can't deny it. I went down and asked the judge, talked to him personally. I told him this guy was coming in and uh, I wish he'd be as lenient on him as he could. And damn it. <laughs> Excuse me, when come time for the trial, the judge took that day off. <laughs> he didn't want anything to do with it. Huh? He didn't want anything to do with it. He didn't want anything to do with it. But I was kind of glad afterwards that I had warned him ahead of time. Right. Because he and I were good friends. See, we had nothing between us but just good friends. Right. And I, I think he knew me and I think I knew him. Mm -hmm. So he just took that day off when this guy was supposed to so you advised on, on a number of cases like that then? That's the only one. The only I one. Think. I think that was the only one. But you stuck your neck out. That was, oh, a, that was way out. That was way out. I wonder somebody didn't chop it off. It's a wonder <laughs> somebody didn't chop it off. You must feel like God's been watching over you God has carefully. watched over me, I'm telling you, ever since the day I was born. <laughs> yes, sir, definitely. I'll never forget saying goodbye to Wendell on the front steps of his house. There was something he wanted to ask me, and the question came as a surprise. He said, do you think it's too late for me to meet someone? I knew from spending a few hours with Wendell how lonely he was, so I didn't tell him what I really thought. So I said that I thought it was never too late. There was always hope of meeting someone, but of course I didn't believe it. Wendell was so isolated and fearful of people knowing he was gay that the odds of him meeting anyone were slim to none. We never spoke again, but I think of Wendell often and the life he might have had if he had been born in 1958, the year I was born, instead of 1904. Wendell was 93 when he died. I hope he wasn't alone. I'd like to thank our executive producer, Sarah Burningham, our audio engineer, Casey Holford, our composer, Fritz Myers. 
Thank you also to Hannah Moak, our social media guru, and their webmaster, Jonathan Dozier-Ezel. We had production assistance from Jenna Weiss-Berman, whose enthusiasm for this project made it possible. The Making Gay History podcast is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with funding from the Arcus Foundation, which is dedicated to the idea that people can live in harmony with one another and the natural world. Learn more about Arcus and its founders at arcusfoundation.org. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the Making Gay History podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find all our episodes on our website at makinggayhistory.com. I hope you enjoyed meeting Wendell as much as I did. Until next week.